at this moment in history. I shall resign, President. Not. A date which will what live again in the town of the city of the Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Yes, we can. Good morning. We are the masters of the natural disaster, enormous in scale. Liberty will never perish. Welcome. Come gather around the campfire and let me tell you a story. Today, we're going to be talking about the assassination of LGBT icon Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone. This is to be played only in the event of my death by assassination. I fully realize that um, a person uh, who stands for what I stand for, an activist, gay activist, becomes the target or the potential target for somebody who is insecure, terrified afraid or very disturbed themselves. Harvey Milk is a name that has survived in infamy as a civil rights leader, an energetic and fearless politician, and a martyr of the gay rights movement in America. George Moscone's name is lesser known as he didn't belong to one singular movement or goal that defined his life and career. But for those who do know about his life, It is one of tireless public service and dedication to making San Francisco more representative of the people that called it home. Both of them would have their bright lives and promising careers cut short by a man that they both may have once considered a friend, or at least a political ally. It was another supervisor who would descend down a path of rage, entitlement, and a callous, selfish plan of revenge that would end in the cold-blooded murder of both Milk and Moscone. Harvey Bernard Milk was a man who seemed to squeeze many lives into one shortened one, from popular high school student to tight-laced Navy sailor to anti-establishment hippie to clean-cut politician. Milk was born on May 22, 1930, in Woodmere, New York, a suburb outside of New York City. His parents, William and Minerva, were both of Lithuanian Jewish descent, and his paternal grandfather, Morris Milk, had owned a department store in the area and helped to organize the first synagogue in the town. Milk and his brother Robert worked at the department store as children. Milk was reportedly a class clown as a child, although he was teased by the other kids for his large ears, nose, and feet. He knew that he was gay from an early age and was well aware that life would not be easy for him when that information came to light. He took steps to cover his sexuality under the outward appearance of a regular all-American high schooler. He joined a football team, made plenty of friends, made good grades. His high school nickname in the yearbook was Glimpy. I don't know, it was the 1940s. And the quote about him read, quote, and they say women are never at a loss for words, unquote. So Milk showed one of the earliest possible signs of being a politician. He could make conversation with a brick wall. But he wasn't on the political path just yet. Milk graduated high school in 1947 and headed off to New York State College for Teachers in Albany with a focus on mathematics. In college, he wrote for the newspaper as a sports editor, and was known as a major opera fan. 
One classmate would later say of him, quote, he was never thought of as a possible queer. That's what you called them then. He was a man's man, unquote. And he graduated in 1951. By then, the Korean War had broke out, and Milk answered Uncle Sam's call. His father and mother had both served before him for the U.S., even though his father was born in Lithuania. Milk joined the Navy and served as a diving officer on the USS Kittywake. The Kittywake was a submarine rescue ship, which have now been replaced in the U.S. Navy with an automated rescue machine to save submarine crew members who are stuck underwater. He was transferred to San Diego to serve as a diving instructor at the naval station there and was discharged in 1955 as a lieutenant, junior grade. This discharge was reportedly because Milk had either been caught with other men in compromising situations or his superiors were at least suspicious and had him officially interrogated about his sexuality. With his military service over, he started teaching at George W. Hewlett High School on Long Island, back home in New York. A year later, he met a man named Joe Campbell at Jacob Riss Park, which was known as a popular hangout for gay men. He tried to keep this relationship hidden from his work and family. If his work found out, he would have likely been fired. Campbell was six years younger than Milk, and Milk wrote Campbell dozens of love letters and poems, initially one-sided, but eventually they became a couple and moved in together. Milk continued writing the love notes, which have now been archived, where he discussed the opera and other interests, but also more serious news about clashes between gay men and the police. The couple moved to Dallas, Texas at one point, but did not enjoy it, and moved back to New York, where Milk worked as a statistician. Their relationship ended in 1962, after six years. Milk considered moving to Miami to marry a lesbian friend to, quote, have a front and each would not be in the way of the other, unquote. But Milk stayed in New York and met another man, Craig Rodwell, in 1962. Rodwell was 10 years younger than Milk, and Milk wooed Rodwell again with love letters, but their relationship was strained because of Rodwell's gay rights activism. Rodwell was part of the New York Mattachine Society, one of the first gay rights organizations in the United States, and Rodwell was arrested for inciting a riot and indecent exposure for a bathing suit that was not below his thigh, and he was sent to jail for three days. Milk ended the relationship after this, and Rodwell attempted to take his own life. Rodwell recovered and would later open the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop which served as a gathering space for the gay community in New York. Milk liked this idea and would drop by when he was in town. Rodwell continued being a gay activist who helped lead the Stonewall Riot and organized the first gay pride march in New York City. Although Milk was unnerved by the growing clashes between the authorities and the gay activism community, he was now aware that gay rights could be connected to politics and activism. And this realization would forever change the course of the rest of his life. Milk quit his statistician job and started working for a Wall Street firm called Banch & Company. He rose through the ranks of the company quickly, even though he irritated his older colleagues by being a bit of a show-off. But they could eventually tell that Milk did not have a passion for the work. In 1964, Milk began dating a 16-year-old named Jack Galen McKinley. At the same time, Milk had been working on the presidential campaign of Republican candidate Barry Goldwater, 
who would eventually lose to Lyndon B. Johnson. This was not a good relationship, and not just because of the age difference. McKinley suffered with his mental health and would threaten to commit suicide if Milk upset him. At one point, Milk even brought McKinley to the hospital to visit his ex-boyfriend Joe Campbell, who was recovering from a suicide attempt. Milk and McKinley visited San Francisco with the touring production of the musical Hair in 1969. McKinley was working as a stage manager, but returned to New York alone because he was offered a job working on Jesus Christ Superstar there, and Milk wanted to stay in California. He got a job at an investment firm, but was fired in 1970 after he refused to cut his long hair, which he considered a political statement. I guess that musical really had an impact. Milk then became involved with the so-called flower children or hippie movement. The uptight conservative Navy veteran mathematician Harvey Milk was transformed. He traveled around to the places where he had lived before, Texas, New York City, and he worked as a theater aide for a while. A New York Times article would later describe him at this time in his life as, quote, a sad-eyed man, another aging hippie with long, long hair, wearing faded jeans and a pretty beard, unquote. He demonstrated against the Vietnam War, even though he was himself a veteran. People from his past were shocked with this rapid transformation, including Rodwell and his old friends from Wall Street. One former banking friend said it was concerning that Milk seemed unambitious, but said, quote, I think he was happier than any time I had ever seen him in his entire life. Unquote. Milk met another much younger man, Scott Smith, who was 18 years younger than Milk. They traveled back to San Francisco together without a plan. In 1973, a camera shop ruined a roll of film that Milk had given them to develop, which inspired the couple to open a camera shop on Castro Street with their last bit of savings of $1,000. San Francisco had a reputation for being a hotspot for the gay community from very early on in its history. It started out with a very skewed male-to-female ratio from its gold rush days. During Prohibition, several gay bars were opened. Then, during World War II, a number of servicemen were thrown out of the military for their sexuality, often while they were at port in this large coastal city. Facing the choice between returning to their small hometowns in shame or staying with a bunch of other newly settled gay men in a community, many took the much more desirable choice. At the time Harvey Milk arrived, things in San Francisco had been getting tense. The Society for Individual Rights and the Daughters of Bilitis had been working to advance gay rights in the city, but it was common for police to raid gay bars and arrest everyone inside outing many people against their will and causing them to lose their jobs, friends, and family support. The mayor of San Francisco, Joseph Alito, cracked down on public sex, particularly in parks after dark. In 1970, 90 men were arrested for this. The next year, 2,800 men were arrested. So it was more than a little bit of a crackdown, and anyone who was caught would be registered as a sex offender. Other California politicians had figured out that these gay rights organizations had growing influence that would be great to have on voting day. Assemblyman Willie Brown pushed for the legalization of all types of sexual activity between consenting adults, but it failed to pass. Supervisor Diane Feinstein decided to run against Marilito and gain the support of the Society for Individual Rights. 
Former police officer Richard Hungisto campaigned for over a decade with the gay community to change outdated views within the San Francisco Police Department. Feinstein's mayoral campaign failed, but Hungisto won sheriff in 1971, a major win for the gay community. After this, the Society for Individual Rights formed a political lobbying wing called the Alice B. Toklas Memorial Democratic Club, often just called Alice. They gained Dianne Feinstein's support for a bill that would outlaw employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Two gay rights leaders spoke at the 1972 Democratic National Convention about gay rights, further highlighting these issues in politics. With all this going on, Milk slowly became more and more interested in politics. His experiences running his camera shop helped build his frustration with the status quo. He fought with state officials about a tax deposit. He was enraged when a teacher asked to borrow a projector because the schools didn't work. He had to be restrained from attacking the television during the Watergate hearings. He decided to run for city supervisor, later saying, quote, I finally reached the point where I knew I had to become involved or shut up, unquote. And Harvey Milk was never one to shut up. Milk didn't immediately click with the gay activism community. Alice founder Jim Foster refused to endorse Milk, telling him, quote, There's an old saying in the Democratic Party, you don't get to dance unless you put up the chairs. I've never seen you putting up the chairs, unquote. But some people in the community, particularly gay bar owners, were not satisfied with the slow and steady work by Alice. They wanted someone with a little more fire and a little less playing nice. And Harvey Milk was born to fill that role. He built his platform, changes to the way money was managed to support people instead of corporations, reorganizing the supervisor system to allow each neighborhood to choose their representative in the city government, legalizing marijuana, and opposing government control over private sexual relationships. Without any significant funding, staff, or training, Milk got 10th place out of 32 candidates in the 1973 election. He didn't win the position, but he did receive 16,900 votes. This would be a sign of one of Milk's strongest skills, coalition building. Instead of overpowering those who disagreed with him, he took steps to bring together different groups, including combining more established traditional groups with the newer, growing, diverse groups in the city. He successfully organized a boycott with the Teamsters Union of Coors Beer, who refused to sign a union contract. Milk had the gay bars agree to the boycott, and the Teamsters agreed to hire more gay drivers. Coors then agreed to the contract. Milk had entered the public spotlight, and he would soon gain the unofficial title Mayor of Castro Street. Broadway director Tom O'Horgan later said, quote, Harvey spent most of his life looking for a stage. On Castro Street, he finally found it, unquote. Milk formed the Castro Village Association in response to a situation in town where some older residents of the neighborhood blocked a gay couple from opening an antiques business in town. Milk also organized the Castro Street Fair in 1974, which attracted over 5,000 customers to the neighborhood, which actually ended up benefiting those older business owners who had initially been so hostile. In 1975, Milk revamped his public image, 
He cut his hair, quit smoking marijuana, and promised to stay out of the gay bathhouses. His camera shop soon became a hub of campaign activity. Oftentimes, Milk would just pull strangers off the street and sign them up as volunteers. He earned respect and support from unions, including the Teamsters, firefighters, and construction workers. He focused heavily on small business protections and protecting neighborhood communities. In the 1975 election, Milk came in seventh place, one slot away from getting a supervisor seat. At this point, city leadership was liberal-controlled, including the mayor, but there were still many conservative voters and leaders in the city. The new mayor, Moscone, appointed Charles Gain as the police chief of the San Francisco PD, which upset many of the officers. Gain had been a public critic of the police force for alcohol abuse and racism within the department. Also in 1975, there was an odd incident in Milk's career. On September 22nd, President Gerald Ford was visiting San Francisco. He was walking from the hotel he was staying at to his car when a woman named Sarah Jane Moore shot at him from about 40 feet or 12 meters away. The bullet missed because Moore's gun was confiscated the day before the attempt and she was using a new gun that she was unfamiliar with. She raised her arm to shoot again and a bystander, former Marine Oliver Sippel, who went by Bill, grabbed her. The second shot hit the pavement and then hit a 42-year-old taxi driver named John Ludwig, who survived the injury. Sippel was suddenly a national hero, and Milk knew Sippel. Sippel had dated Milk's ex-boyfriend, Joe Campbell, and Sippel's breakup with Campbell had been the catalyst for Campbell's suicide attempt. Sippel did not want the attention from the incident and did not want to be outed as a gay man. But Milk saw the opportunity in the situation and couldn't resist it. He had been fighting for years for more visibility for gay people to show that they were normal citizens. He told a friend, quote, It's too good an opportunity. For once we can show that gays do heroic things, not just all that caca about molesting children and hanging out in bathrooms, unquote. Milk called the San Francisco Chronicle, who broke the story that Sippel was a gay man and a friend of Milk's. Sippel and his family were harassed by reporters from across the country. His mother, a devout Baptist, broke contact with Sippel. President Ford wrote Sippel a thank-you note for saving his life, but did not invite him to the White House, which seems like a pretty light thank-you for saving the president's life. This obviously was a terrible thing for Milk to do, and Sippel sued the Chronicle for the story. In 1976, Mayor Moscone appointed Milk to the Board of Permit Appeals, a not incredibly exciting-sounding position, but one that made him the first openly gay city commissioner in the U.S. He was only in the position for five weeks when he announced he was running for California State Assembly. He was fired from the Board of Appeals because of a rule prohibiting officials for running a campaign while currently serving in office. Moscone had already made a deal to support another candidate, Art Agnos, for the position. Milk painted himself as an underdog candidate, not supported by even the established gay clubs of the city. A local magazine proclaimed the race, Harvey Milk versus the Machine. Milk's campaign was energetic, but a mess. Lists were kept on scrap paper, campaign money was pulled from the Castro camera cash register, the campaign manager's assistant was literally 11 years old. 
But Milk took steps to broaden his campaign reach to everyone, not just the gay community. His personality was wild. He would snap in anger, often at his boyfriend Scott Smith, and then snap back to excitement the next moment. He bounced through the neighborhood registering voters and shaking hands and giving impromptu speeches. He had hundreds of volunteers who would stand out with sandwich board signs on the side of the road. He maybe actually talked to too many people, considering he also spent time handing out campaign flyers to the People's Temple, also known as the Jonestown Cult, who were one of the most prominent organizations in San Francisco at the time. Milk even wrote a letter to President Carter at one point, saying that Jim Jones was, quote, a man of the highest character, unquote, which certainly wasn't Milk's best endorsement. In the end, Milk lost the election by less than 4,000 votes. Agnos would say that Milk's campaign speeches were depressing. Quote, you talk about how you're going to throw the bums out, but how are you going to fix things other than beat me? You shouldn't leave your audience out of down, unquote. After the race, Milk realized he would never win the endorsement of the established gay political club, Alice, and co-founded his own, the San Francisco Democratic Club. Now things were heating up in the national gay rights movement. In 1977, the gay rights movement in America had a major victory when the Dade County in Florida banned discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. In response, singer Anita Bryant led a group of fundamentalist Christians in a campaign called Save Our Children, not to be confused with the actual charity Save the Children. They gathered 64,000 signatures for a revote on the law and worked with the Florida Citrus Commission, I, I don't know why they felt the need to get involved, but okay, to advertise against the law, saying Dade County would become, quote, hotbed of homosexuality where men cavort with little boys, unquote. San Francisco sent their best organizer to Miami to help the gay community, but Save Our Children succeeded in overturning the law with 70% of the vote, now making it legal again to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. Unfortunately, this energized the anti-gay movement across the country. Gay activists were saddened and angered by the lack of support they received. 3,000 residents in Milk's Castro neighborhood marched in the street that night, chanting, out of the bars and into the streets. Milk led a five-mile march through the city, moving quickly to avoid starting a riot. He said, quote, This is the power of the gay community. Anita's going to create a national gay force, unquote. Over the next two years, three more civil rights laws were overturned across the country, and the fight came to San Francisco, too. State Senator John Briggs had his eye on the governor's seat and was excited by the power demonstrated by the Christian fundamentalist movement. He wrote a bill to ban all gay and lesbian people in California from teaching at public schools, even though in private he told journalist Randy Schiltz that he had nothing against the gay community. It was, quote, just politics, unquote. Many openly gay San Franciscans were subject to random violent attacks. The gay community was unimpressed by the police response and instead formed community watches to patrol on their own. In June of 1977, Briggs held a press conference where he said that gay people had turned San Francisco into, quote, a sexual garbage heap, unquote. The next week, Robert Hillsborough, 
a 33-year-old gardener for the city, and his boyfriend, 27-year-old Jerry Taylor, were attacked by four men after leaving a restaurant. Taylor was able to escape, but the attacker stabbed Hillsborough 15 times while screaming anti-gay slurs at him. Hillsborough died from his injuries. The murderers were ages 16 to 21, three of whom were identified as John Cordova, who actually did the stabbing, Thomas Spooner, and Michael Chavez. Cordova was later convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And if you're as mad as I am at that light sentence, just wait until you hear the end of this story. Mayor Moscone and Hillsborough's family specifically named John Briggs and Anita Bryant as being responsible for the murder by stirring up anti-gay sentiment across the country. The gay community rebounded by holding the largest gay pride event in their history up until that point, just a few weeks after their murder, with over 250,000 attendees. In 1976, San Francisco restructured their political system. Voters decided that each neighborhood would vote in their own supervisor, instead of the city overall choosing the entire board. Milk was now a candidate for the Castro Street neighborhood, District 5, along with 17 others, over half of whom were gay. The community had been energized by the growing anti-gay movement across the country. At the time of the election, the New York Times estimated that San Francisco had a gay population of 10 to 20,000, about 20% of the total population of the city. Milk's most serious opponent was lawyer Rick Stokes. Stokes had the backing of the Alice Club and was a, quote, quiet and thoughtful, unquote, counterpart to Milk's energetic and more aggressive campaign strategy. Stokes had also been out of the closet for much longer than Milk, and had even been forced into electroshock therapy as so-called treatment. But Milk was more vocal about how his gay identity shaped his politics. Harvey Milk, the most unorthodox politician, a homosexual elected not in spite of it, but because of it in a district that is largely homosexual. Stokes said at one point, quote, I'm just a businessman who happens to be gay, unquote. Milk, on the other hand, said, quote, We don't want sympathetic liberals. We want gays to represent gays. I represent the gay street people, the 14-year-old runaway from San Antonio. We're here to make up for hundreds of years of persecution. We have to give hope to that poor runaway kid from San Antonio. They go to the bars because the churches are hostile. They need hope. They need a piece of the pie. Unquote. As well as that, Milk focused on child care, free public transportation, and a civilian board to oversee the police. This time, the support came. He won with 30% of the vote and rode into Castro Street on a motorcycle with a police escort to a, quote, tumultuous and moving welcome, unquote. Somewhere in Des Moines or San Antonio, there's a young gay person who all of a sudden realizes that she or he is gay, knows that if the parents find out, they'll be tossed out of the house. The classmates would taunt the child, and the Anita Bryans and John Briggs are doing their bit on TV, and that child had several options. Staying in a closet, suicide, and then one day that child might open a paper and it says homosexual elected in San Francisco and there are two new options. The option is to go to California. 
stay in San Antonio and fight. Personally, he was now dating a younger man named Jack Lira, who was often hurried out of political events after heavy drinking. Around this time as well, Milk was receiving more death threats. He realized that the higher he climbed in the political ladder, the bigger target was placed on his back, especially as a gay rights activist. He recorded a message in case he was killed, outlining his possible replacements and his thoughts. Knowing that uh, I could be assassinated at any moment or any time, I feel it's important that some people know my thoughts. I stood for more than just a candidate. I, I have never considered myself a candidate. I have always considered myself part of a movement, part of a candidacy. I wish I had time to explain everything I did. Almost everything was done in the eyes of the gay movement. Milk was sworn in as the first non-incumbent openly gay man to win public office in the United States. Also sworn in with Milk was the first single mother, Chinese-American, and African-American woman sworn into office in San Francisco. Dan White, a veteran, former police officer, and former firefighter, was also sworn in with Milk. And uh, we're going to get back to him, unfortunately. Milk came in hot to City Hall. He strode up to the ceremony with his partner, Jack Lira, and said, quote, You can stand around and throw bricks at Silly Hall, or you can take it over. Well, here we are, unquote. He irritated Supervisor President Dianne Feinstein and Mayor Moscone at times. At their first meeting, Milk told Moscone that he was, quote, the number one queen, unquote, and he was the new channel for Moscone to get the gay vote instead of the Alice Club. But Moscone and Milk eventually became close political allies. Milk fought against a parking garage destroying homes in the city and proposed a tax on commuters. He was dedicated to preserving the rights of the community over real estate developers and the everyday worker over the large corporation. He helped establish a daycare for working mothers, turn military facilities into low-income housing, and helped expand services for his district, like the library. He was fine with voting against other board members, including Feinstein. Milk was also focused on a much more casual issue. The bill, nicknamed the Pooper Scooper Law, would require dog owners to pick up dog poop, which was apparently the top issue for San Francisco voters, according to a poll. This generated a massive amount of press coverage for Milk, which she knew would happen. In one stunt, he called a press conference in a local park about the Pooper Scooper Law, and while they were there, he stepped in dog poop in front of the cameras. Although it had been a planned act, it made national news. Unfortunately, victory is often accompanied by tragedy, and Milk's political high came with a personal tragedy around the same time. Milk and his partner Lyra had taken a break after Milk had grown upset about Lyra's alcoholism. After several weeks, Lyra called Milk and told him to come home, where Milk found that Lyra had taken his own life. He had a history of depression and suicide attempts, and also left Milk a note saying that part of this depressive episode had been the national movement surrounding Anita Bryant and the local campaign of John Briggs. Briggs was rallying support around a proposed law, Proposition 6, which was often called the Briggs Initiative. This law would make it mandatory to fire any public school employee who was gay, 
or even openly supported gay rights. Milk showed up at every event Briggs hosted in California and debated him many times, saying that even if Briggs won California, he would never win San Francisco. Briggs pushed the narrative that gay teachers would recruit children to be gay and abuse them. Milk pulled statistics that most convicted pedophiles were heterosexual. He also said, quote, If it were true that children mimic their teachers, you'd sure have a hell of a lot more nuns running around, unquote. I'm tired of listening to the Anita Bryans twist the language of the Bible to fit their own distorted outlook. And I'm tired of the John Briggs talking and lying about false role models. He's lying in his teeth and he knows it. You must remember that gay doctors, any gay person who has any kind of license is in danger and the Holocaust will begin. Gay people all across the state, the Briggs can only be defeated if each and every one of you comes out to everyone you know you must. At the same time, the gay community rallied. Hundreds of thousands of people gathered for the 1978 San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Parade, holding signs with their hometown to show that the Castro community was made up of people from all over America. Milk held up a sign saying, I'm from Woodmere, New York, and gave a rousing speech. And most importantly, most importantly, every gay person must come out. As difficult as it is, you must tell your immediate family, you must tell your relatives, you must tell your friends if indeed they are your friends, you must tell your neighbors, you must tell the people you work with, you must tell the people in the stores you shop in. You Once they realize that we are indeed their children and we are indeed everywhere, every myth, every lie, every innuendo will be destroyed once and for all. And once, once you do, you will feel so much better. He also said, quote, Even if gays lose in these initiatives, people are still being educated. Because of Anita Bryant, Dade County, the entire country was educated about homosexuality to a greater extent than ever before. The first step is always hostility. And after that, you can sit down and talk about it. Unquote. President Jimmy Carter, Governor Jerry Brown, and former Governor Ronald Reagan publicly opposed the Briggs Initiative. In November, the proposition failed by over a million votes, a major success for the gay rights movement. Tensions within the San Francisco Police Department were also growing. Charles Gain, the new chief appointed by Mayor Moscone, was unafraid to make changes that were unpopular amongst the force. It ranged from the relatively minor, like painting the police cars a different shade of blue, to the bigger changes that should have happened a long time ago, like banning officers from drinking on the job and welcoming African-American and gay officers. He made national news when he said, quote, I certainly think that a gay policeman could be upfront about it under me. If I had a gay policeman who came out, I would support him 100%, unquote. Rumors spread that there are plans to assassinate Gain and Moscone, and Moscone even hired a bodyguard.
Now let's talk a little bit more about Dan White. He was a California native from Long Beach and raised in San Francisco, the second of nine children born to Irish working-class parents. He was expelled from his first high school, but would be valedictorian of his second, an odd contradiction that seems to undershadow White's life pretty well. He served in the Army and then in the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam, honorably discharged in 1971. He wandered to Alaska as a school security guard after that, but then returned to San Francisco to join the police force. Then there was an interesting shift. White reported another officer for beating a suspect who was in handcuffs, and then faced such strong backlash from his brothers in blue that he was forced to quit the SFPD. He joined the fire department instead, and made the papers for saving a woman and a baby from the seventh floor of a blaze. The city celebrated their, quote, all-American hero, unquote, as the papers called him. How did this man, who seemed dedicated to public service, sacrifice, and morality at the expense of his own career, turn into a cold-blooded assassin? Well, maybe that moral backbone turned a little bit to Javert than Valjean, so to say. White was elected to the Board of Supervisors in 1977, representing the southeast of the city. Despite his whistleblowing, he was backed by the police and firefighters' unions, and his base was, quote, a largely white middle-class section that is hostile to the growing homosexual community of San Francisco, unquote. The New York Times said that White thought of himself as, quote, the defender of the home, the family, and religious life against homosexuals, pot smokers, and cynics, unquote. So White and known homosexual pot smoker Harvey Milk did not seem like a great match. But they initially got along well. Milk was one of three co-workers invited to the baptism of White's baby. White helped Milk become chairman of the Streets and Transportation Committee. White had opposed the Briggs Initiative. Their big split was over the Juvenile Mental Health Treatment Center proposed by the Catholic Church in April 1978 to go inside White's district. This was going to treat young people who had committed very serious crimes, including murder and sexual assault. Milk initially supported Dan White in his attempt to block a mental health facility. But then, Milk switched sides, and White lost his fight, which had been important to upholding his campaign promises. After that, things shifted between them dramatically. White ensured that he would never vote for a single thing that Milk supported. They stopped speaking, except through political aids. Milk pushed forward a bill to outlaw discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, and White was the only one to vote against it. But it passed, and it was signed into law by Moscone. It's odd that White would vote against this, but oppose the Briggs Initiative. It seemed to have been motivated less by homophobia and more by his grudge against Milk. On November 10th, 1978, Dan White resigned from the Board of Supervisors after only 10 months. He said it was in protest of his salary of $9,600, roughly $40,000 today, which he claimed was too low to support his family. Only a few days later, after meeting with some of his supporters, including the Board of Realtors and the Police Officers Association, he changed his mind and asked Mayor Moscone to allow him to withdraw his resignation. 
Some of his constituents had reportedly promised to help supplement his income. Moscone initially agreed, saying, quote, A man has the right to change his mind, unquote. But other supervisors, namely Milk, Carol Ruth Silver, and Assemblyman Willie Brown, convinced him to change his mind. With White gone, Moscone could choose someone else who was more liberal and perhaps more ethnically or racially diverse. This was huge news for about a week in San Francisco. And then, on November 18th, something else stole the spotlight. 900 people committed mass murder-suicide in Jonestown. Many of the cult members were from California, as the cult had originally been based in San Francisco before moving to Guyana in South America. And California Representative Leo Ryan was shot and killed when he went to check on his former constituents in Jonestown right before the suicide. Dan White, apparently not super concerned about this horrific cult murder, told his aides, quote, You see that? One day I'm on the front page, and the next I'm swept right off, unquote. Brown recalled, quote, White had trouble with gays, but he and Milk had opened a dialogue. They would meet every Thursday for coffee at the same joint in the Castro. White thought Milk was his friend. Then, a couple days before the killings, White happened to be outside Milk's store at City Hall, and Milk was talking on the phone with Moscone. Moscone had called Milk to ask, should I really reappoint him? And Milk told him, no, he's crazy, he's a lunatic, don't you dare reappoint him. White heard every word, unquote. Now, in White's mind, it was clear that he and Milk had never been friends, as he had thought. He may have worked through his grudge about the mental health center, but now there was a fresh betrayal. November 26, 1978, White heard from a reporter that Moscone was not going to reappoint him. On November 27th, Moscone was planning on holding a press conference to announce White's replacement, Dan Horenzi. White snuck into City Hall through a window into the basement to avoid security. Assemblyman and future mayor of San Francisco, Willie Brown, said that he was visiting Moscone in his office right before the press conference. He said, quote, We sat there, BSing about football, about politics, about how we were going to do some early Christmas shopping at the Wolf's Den. That's what George and I were talking about. Nothing, really. In the middle of it all, I got a call telling me my jury was coming back, so I got up and left. As I was going out the door of the inner office, Dan White was coming in. I don't remember anything dramatic about his appearance. He was a strange-looking guy in general, but at that moment, there didn't seem to be anything strange about him, unquote. White asked to meet with Moscone after his meeting with Brown, and Moscone invited him in before the press conference in 30 minutes. Moscone invited White into his private lounge for more privacy. White asked him again to give back the supervisor position. Moscone refused but continued talking with him, pouring them both a drink and lighting a cigarette. Witnesses heard yelling and then gunshots. White shot Moscone in the shoulder and chest, which tore his lung. He fell to the ground and White moved the gun six inches away from Moscone's head and fired twice, killing him. He then reloaded his gun, which was a police revolver. Like Saldivar in the last episode about the murder of Selena, Reports say that White was using hollow-point bullets to ensure maximum damage to his targets. White left the office and walked towards his own former office. Diane Feinstein saw him and called him over, but he said, quote, I have something to do first, unquote. 
As he was walking, he ran into Milt. White asked him to step into the office. He closed the door behind him and then stood in front of it. According to the coroner's report, Harvey Milk was rising, both hands out in front of him when the first shot hit. He fell. He shot him twice in the chest and then at his head, killing him. He leaned over and from above put the gun nearly against Harvey Milk's head and fired a last time. Diane Feinstein heard the shots and called the police. She rushed into the room and checked Milk's pulse. She would later describe, quote, It's still traumatic because I tried to get a pulse in his wrist and put my finger in a bullet hole, and it was clear he was dead, and that changed the world, unquote. The police arrived and officially determined that Mayor George Moscone was now dead at 49, and Harvey Milk was dead at 48, at around 10.55 a.m. Feinstein took over the press conference and told the crowd, Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. Willie Brown described the aftermath of the shooting, quote, Everything was confusion, and no one knew that White was the killer. In fact, we thought that the shootings might have been connected to Jonestown. The place was swarming with cops, and instantly one of them started hanging on to me. After a while, Nottenberg asked us to help interpret what the procedures were in the case of the death of the mayor. None of us had ever read the city charter provision on the subject. When we looked at it, it was clear that Diane Feinstein, president of the Board of Supervisors, would be the interim mayor. Then we agreed I would be the person to break the news of George's killing to his wife, Gina. She was on the road on the Golden Gate Bridge, headed somewhere. We didn't want her to hear it on the news, so we got the California Highway Patrol to find her station wagon and bring her back to City Hall. I didn't hear that Harvey Milk had been shot until one of the cops came over and told us, unquote. He also said, quote, It's funny, the hand that fate deals you. Had that jury come back later, and I had stayed in the room with George? Who knows? Instead, I'm here, writing this, unquote. White escaped the scene. He called his wife an hour later from a diner and asked her to meet him at a church. She did, and then he turned himself in at his former police station. Later that night, a crowd of 25,000 to 40,000 people held a candlelit march from Castro Street to City Hall. Singer Joan Baez and San Francisco Gay Men's Choir both performed. Cleve Jones, Milk's intern, who would later become a major gay rights activist himself, said, quote, And we marched to Civic Center and filled it with candlelight. And I remember standing in that huge crowd and realizing, of course, it wasn't over. It was, in fact, just beginning, unquote. Milk's replacement and friend, Harry Britt, said, quote, Harvey was a prophet. He lived by a vision. Something very special is going to happen in this city, and it will have Harvey Milk's name on it, unquote. The day after the murders, Moscone and Milk's bodies were placed in the rotunda of City Hall so that people could pay their respects. 6,000 people attended a Catholic service for Mayor Moscone. A small Jewish service was held for Milk, and then a larger memorial at the opera house that he loved so much. There was an odd coincidence that caught press attention in the aftermath of the assassinations. The cult members at Jonestown had been participating in emergency drills called White Nights, 
right before their mass murder-suicide. The odd coincidence between this name and the name of Dan White was just that, a coincidence. But it did spark plenty of rumors. The double tragedy of the Jonestown disaster and the double assassination, the double tragedy of the Jonestown disaster and the assassinations sparked a response that quickly became known as a city in agony because of the headline in the San Francisco Examiner. A quote from the paper said, A city with more sadness and despair in its heart than any city should ever have to bear, unquote. And went on to ask how such tragedies could occur, particularly to, quote, men of such warmth and vision and great energies, unquote. The governor of California, Jerry Brown, called Milk, quote, a hard-working and dedicated supervisor, a leader of San Francisco's gay community, who kept his promise to represent all his constituents, unquote. And he ordered flags to be flown at half-mast. Dan White was taken into custody after his surrender by Officer Frank Falzone and held without bail on two murder charges. He was interrogated and recorded a confession, crying and said, quote, I just shot him, unquote. A new state law made him eligible for the death penalty because he had murdered a public official. It surely came as a surprise to those that had passed the law that it was now being used for a case where not only the victims were public officials, but the perpetrator as well. This was especially shocking because White had made being tough on crime a major part of his platform. He had even been scheduled to receive an award just three weeks after the murder for saving the lives of that woman and her child during the fire. And White certainly wasn't super comfortable with gay people, but he wasn't aggressively homophobic, which is obviously still terrible, but saying a lot for the time period. He did vote against Milk's gay rights ordinance, the only supervisor to do so. But he had publicly said, quote, I respect the rights of all people, including gays, unquote. He had gay staff. He even voted in favor of a gay senior center and voted in favor of honoring famous lesbian activists Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin. Although White's first campaign manager quit and said that he was a secret homophobe who only played the tolerance card when it benefited him politically. As a member of the Board of Supervisors, Harvey Milk championed homosexual rights. The one supervisor who consistently voted against homosexual rights, even voted against a gay rights parade this year, was former supervisor Dan White. White was known to be a grudge holder, hot-tempered and obsessive. The assistant fire chief who had worked with White said that, quote, he was impulsive, an extremely competitive man, obsessively so. I think he could not take defeat. Unquote. He was also described as, quote, with a pugilistic temper and an impressive capacity for nurturing a, a grudge, unquote. The poor staff member who had to run communication between Milk and White said that, quote, talking to White, I realized that he saw Harvey Milk and George Moscone as representing all that was wrong with the world, unquote. And that supervisor salary was low. Milk's friends would find that out when they went through his apartment after his death and find that all his clothing was held together by a thread, and his socks were full of holes. On May 1st, 1979, White's trial began. Dan White's trial caused extreme tension in San Francisco, particularly between the police and the liberal public. The tension was already there, but this double assassination thrust it into the spotlight. 
the largely working-class, ethnically Irish police force had been becoming more and more disillusioned with the growing LGBT community moving in and the city government becoming more and more liberal. White likely knew when he turned himself in that he was not going to receive harsh treatment from his former co-workers on the police force. The officers reported he told jokes about the murder of Milk and even wore free Dan White t-shirts, which could not be more blatant. One officer later said, quote, The more I observed what went on in the jail, the more I began to stop seeing what Dan White had did as the act of an individual and began to see it as a political act and a political movement, unquote. Now comes the trial, which was truly ridiculous. The jury was skewed heavily in White's favor, with members of the gay community and racial minorities excluded. All the jurors were white and middle class, and most were Catholic, like White, but also like Moscone. Although it was extraordinarily clear that White had committed the murders, White's defense attorney, Doug Schmidt, pushed hard for the idea that White was not truly responsible for his actions. Some jurors cried when they heard White's confession. The police investigator on the tape thanked White for being honest during the interrogation. Schmidt claimed that, quote, good people, fine people with fine backgrounds, simply don't kill people in cold blood, unquote. Which, if you've spent about five minutes looking into true crime at all, is simply not true. Fine people with fine backgrounds murder people all the time. Schmidt's defense mostly hinged on the idea that White had been in such a state of mental suffering and depression that he couldn't be held responsible for killing his two colleagues in broad daylight under the rule of diminished capacity. He said that White had been manipulated by his colleagues and given the false promise of his job back just to take it away again, even though he had quit in the first place. The most infamous and dumbest, if I can add my opinion, part of the defense was what the press quickly snapped up as the Twinkie defense. Basically, Schmidt brought in a former psychiatrist who said that one piece of evidence pointing towards White's diminished capacity was the fact that White had eaten a bunch of junk food the night before the murder, because he usually ate healthy foods. They claimed that White's depression prevented him from being able to truly premeditate and plan the killings. The jury would later describe him as, quote, a man pushed beyond his endurance, unquote. Several people testified that it was regular practice to hop down into City Hall through the window to save all the pesky trouble of walking through a metal detector. Everyone knows that could kill a whole morning. Another police officer who worked with White said that police officers carried their gun and ammunition all the time, so it wasn't unusual for him to have it on him. On May 21st, 1979, the jury came back after 36 hours of deliberation. Dan White was acquitted of first-degree murder and instead found guilty of two counts of voluntary manslaughter. He received a sentence of seven years and four months, with a reduced sentence of five years for good behavior. Let's repeat that. The jury and the judge decided that Dan White would serve five years in prison for assassinating the mayor of San Francisco and Supervisor Harvey Milk. White cried when the verdict was read, and many of his former police colleagues celebrated the short sentence. Acting Mayor Feinstein, Supervisor Carol Rue Silver, and Harry Britt all condemned the verdict. Then came the nighttime, and with it, the White Night Riots. The next day, May 22nd, would have been Milk's 49th birthday. 
Milk's friend and fellow activist Cleve Jones, who years after this would create the world-famous AIDS quilt, spoke to a crowd of about 500 people on Castro Street and told them the bad news. He led them in an initially peaceful march down the street as more and more people joined the crowd from bars, chanting, out of the bars and into the streets. By the time they reached City Hall, the crowd had now grown to 5,000 people. Jones would later say about the crowd, quote, The rage in people's face. I saw people I'd known for years, and they were so furious. That, to me, was the scariest thing. All these people I'd known from the neighborhood, boys from the corner, these people I'd ridden the bus with, just out there screaming for blood, unquote. Thousands of people, mainly from the Castro district, marched to City Hall. They chanted, Avenge Harvey Milk, and he got away with murder. They yelled out, Kill Dan White, and dump Diane Feinstein. They started to break pieces off the building and smash windows. Some of Milk's friends and staff, including his partner Scott Smith, tried to stop them, but were vastly outnumbered. A rioter smashed his way into a police car and lit it on fire. It exploded, and 12 more police cars and 8 other cars were also destroyed. Rioters also stole tear gas, damaged city trolleys, and shoved burning newspapers through the mail slot to try and ignite City Hall. When one reporter asked a rioter why they were attacking City Hall and the police cars, the rioter responded, quote, Just tell people we ate too many Twinkies, that's why this is happening. Unquote. The police gathered and called for reinforcements. Chief Charles Gaines was inside City Hall and ordered officers to not attack. They sent out acting Mayor Feinstein and Supervisor Carol Bruce Silver to speak to the crowd and try to calm them. A risky decision that ended up with Silver being struck by an object thrown from the crowd. Silver said, quote, Dan White has gotten away with murder. It's as simple as that, unquote. After about three hours of rioting, the police started to act. They covered their badges with tape to hide their identities and fired tear gas into the crowd. They were shocked when the rioters fought back with chunks of asphalt, metal from cars, and tree branches. One cried out, quote, Make sure you put it in the paper that I ate too many Twinkies, unquote. Sixty police officers and over 140 rioters were injured. Over two dozen people were arrested. Later that night, riot police went to a bar on Castro Street called the Elephant Walk, where many members of the gay community had gathered. Even though they had been ordered not to, the officers spent 15 minutes beating the bar patrons and shouting anti-gay slurs at them. Then they joined a group of other officers attacking branded people in the street for two hours until Chief Charles Gain heard what was happening, arrived at the scene, and ordered his men to leave. The next day, Milk's replacement, Harry Britt, shocked the press when he said, quote, Harvey Milk's people do not have anything to apologize for. Now the society's going to have to deal with us not as nice little fairies who have hairdressing salons, but as people capable of violence. We're not going to put up with the Dan Whites anymore. Unquote. No other gay leader from the community would apologize for the riots either. The next day was a planned memorial rally in honor of Milk's 49th birthday. The city officials considered canceling it, but allowed it because they were afraid a cancellation would cause another riot. Cleve Jones and Mayor Feinstein worked with the police to coordinate plans to quell any violence that might take place. About 20,000 people came together for a peaceful celebration of Milk's life, with music, dancing, and beer. Across the country, in Manhattan, there was a much smaller protest of about 100 people. The next year, 
Over 100,000 people marched together in Washington, D.C. to demonstrate for gay rights nationwide. Milk had been helping plan the march before his death, and many of the marchers carried his photo with them. The district attorney, Joseph Freitas, was pressured to investigate why white senates had been so light for murdering two politicians in cold blood. The prosecutor would later admit to failing to ask appropriate questions about the investigation, particularly to the officer who had first interrogated White after the murders. The interrogator was a childhood friend and baseball teammate of White's. The prosecutor said he had felt sorry for White and hadn't wanted to embarrass the interrogator in court in front of his family. The only evidence that the jury had heard about White and Milk's relationship, which if you remember was barely on speaking terms, was from Supervisor Carol Ruth Silver, who had insisted on testifying that the two did not get along. D.A. Freitas said, quote, It was a wrong decision. The jury was overwhelmed by emotions and did not sufficiently analyze the evidence that this was deliberate, calculated murder, unquote. In contrast, White's own attorney would say that White was, quote, filled with remorse, and I think he's in a very bad condition, unquote. Later, White would tell Frank Falzone, the officer that he had surrendered to, that not only had it been premeditated, but he had also intended to assassinate Carol Rue Silver and Assemblyman Willie Brown. He considered Silver, Brown, Moscone, and Milk as being behind the move to block him from reclaiming his supervisor seat, even though he had been the one to resign in the first place again. White reportedly said, quote, I was on a mission. I wanted four of them. Carol Ruth Silver, she was the biggest snake, and Willie Brown, he was mastering the whole thing, unquote. So, it may be that White had just a little extra motivation to kill Milk because of their past feuds, or it may have been a random twist of fate that White ran into Milk in the hallway that day when he was armed and angry. The officer said, quote, I felt like I had been hit by a sledgehammer. I found out it was a premeditated murder, unquote which I could have told you too, sir. But apparently this guy was more convinced by the Twinkies. White's revolver has since gone missing from police evidence and was possibly destroyed. In 1980, San Francisco got rid of the supervisor system altogether, but it would later be restored in 2000. California voters decided to change the laws surrounding diminished capacity, which had led to White's incredibly light sentence. Diminished capacity could no longer be used as a defense in trial but evidence about it could still be admitted. The Twinkie defense remains a well-known and misunderstood phrase. Someone could get away with murder just because they ate a lot of junk food. On January 7, 1984, Dan White was released from prison after serving five years of his seven-year sentence. He was secretly moved to Los Angeles to be paroled, although officers were worried that he might still suffer vigilante justice. The night of his release... 9,000 people protested on Castro Street and burned an effigy of him. Milk's former partner, Scott Smith, gave a speech urging everyone not to attempt vigilante justice of any kind. He said, quote, Harvey was against the death penalty. He was a nonviolent person, unquote. White decided to go back to San Francisco, despite the fact that the new mayor, Feinstein, formally asked him to never return to the city. He attempted to reconnect with his wife and three children, but eventually became divorced. In October of that year, White took his own life by carbon monoxide poisoning in his garage at the age of 39. White had told friends he had been struggling with the aftermath of his crimes 
and the fact that his wife had divorced him. His lawyer claimed he had remorse for the killings, but others who knew him said he did not. Only once had he said anything close to that publicly, stating in a 1983 interview, quote, I guess they were nice guys. Too bad it happened, unquote. Mayor Feinstein said, quote, This latest tragedy should close a very sad chapter in this city's history, unquote. He was buried with a veteran's headstone in San Bruno, California. Mayor George Moscone's legacy has been largely overshadowed by the death of the newer, divisive, and boisterous Harvey Milk. Milk has become a symbol and hero of the gay rights movement, what one exhibit called St. Harvey, a modern-day gay martyr. He had the promise and mystery of a long career ahead of him. What would Milk have done if he had lived? Moscone, as a more established political figure and representative of a much more established demographic of politicians, did not reach the same level of post-death symbolism, but he does have a legacy. Moscone is remembered as the people's mayor who helped push forward rights for those with disabilities and the gay community and made large strides in making the city government more diverse and the city more accepting to minority groups, even though he received deep backlash. He left behind a wife and four children. His son Jonathan was 14 years old when his father was assassinated and he would later write a play called Ghostlight about how the event impacted him, which a critic described as a brave, evocative, and surprisingly funny play. A documentary about Moscone called Moscone, A Legacy of Change premiered in 2018. A bust was commissioned of him in 1980 to be placed in the newly named Moscone Convention Center. The original draft sparked backlash because it included a decorative carving of a pistol, which people did not love, and a new bust was made of him that depicted Moscone writing one of his quotes. San Francisco is an extraordinary city because its people have learned to live together with one another, to respect each other, and to work with each other for the future of their community. That's the strength and beauty of this city. It's the reason why the citizens who live here are the luckiest people in the world. Unquote. Harvey Milk had an impact on San Francisco and national politics that has lasted long after his death. He fought for a responsible government, strong city neighborhoods, small business owners, and the freedom to love who you want and be yourself. He wanted the Castro neighborhood to be a welcoming home for everyone and wasn't afraid to tackle the small issues, protecting the neighborhood elementary school, fixing streets and signs, and even his ordinance about picking up dog poop. Journalist Randy Schiltz later said, quote, Some would claim Harvey was a socialist, or various other sorts of ideologues. But in reality, Harvey's political philosophy was never more complicated than the issue of dog shit. Government should solve people's basic problems. Unquote. Professor Karen Foss described him, quote, Milk happened to be a highly energetic, charismatic figure with a love of theatrics and nothing to lose. Using laughter, reversal, transcendence, and his insider-outsider status, Milk helped create a climate in which dialogue on issues became possible. He also provided a means to integrate the disparate voices of his various constituencies. Unquote. He is remembered for his sharp and charming speeches. One of his most famous lines, My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you! was in reference to the widespread belief that gay people intended to recruit young people into the gay community. Except in this speech, he was recruiting young people into politics. 
One of his last speeches read in part as follows. Two days after I was elected, I got a phone call, and the voice was quite young. It was from Altoona, Pennsylvania, and the person said, thanks. And you've got to elect gay people so that that young child and the thousands upon thousands like that child know that there's hope for a better world. There's hope for a better tomorrow. Without hope, not only gays, but those blacks and the Asians and the disabled and the seniors, the us's, the us's, without hope, the us's give up. I know that you cannot live on hope alone, but without it, life is not worth living. And you, and you, and you, you've got to give them hope. Thank you very much. Towards the end of his life, Milk also highlighted his hope that gay people of all ages and professions would come out so that the world would see that gay people were their neighbors, their co-workers, their friends, their children, their family members. He regretted never coming out to his mother before she died. In a video that he taped shortly before his death, Milk said, I cannot prevent it from some people from getting angry and frustrated and mad, but I hope they will take the anger and frustration and madness instead of demonstrating or anything of that type. I hope they take it to positive, and I hope five, ten, a hundred thousand would rise. I'd love to see every gay doctor come out. I'd love to see every gay lawyer, every gay judge, every gay bureaucrat, every gay architect come out. Stand up and let the world know that would do more to end prejudice overnight than anybody could have imagined. Urge them to do that. Urge them to come out. It's only that way will we start to achieve our rights. If Harvey Milk had lived, it's possible that he would have continued climbing the ranks and reached national fame. But it's more likely that because of his assassination at the peak of his career, he became much more famous in death than he would have ever been in life. His friend and protege, Cleve Jones, would later say, quote, His murder and the responses to it made it permanent and unquestionable the full participation of gay and lesbian people in the political process. Harvey Milk has a slew of local and national tributes. In San Francisco, there's Harvey Milk Plaza, the Harvey Milk LGBT Democratic Club, Harvey Milk Airport Terminal 1. In New York City, the Harvey Milk School serves at-risk LGBT youth. And in 2016, the U.S. Navy ship Harvey Milk was named after the former young Navy officer, alongside the new ships Robert F. Kennedy, Earl Warren, and Sojourner Truth. Openly gay reporter Randy Schultz wrote a book on Harvey called The Mayor of Castro Street in 1982. And in 1984, the documentary based on the book, The Times of Harvey Milk, won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. There was a musical and an opera, which I'm sure Milk would have loved, and a biopic movie named Milk that also won two Oscars. He was listed in Time Magazine's Heroes and Icons of the 20th Century, where they described him as a symbol of what gays can accomplish and the dangers they face in doing so. President Obama awarded him a posthumous Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2009, and Milk's nephew Stewart founded the Harvey Milk Foundation soon after. The same year, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger inducted Milk into the California Hall of Fame, 
and proclaimed May 22nd, his birthday, as Harvey Milk Day. In 2012, he was inducted into the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor at the Stonewall Inn in New York. Harvey Milk and George Moscone both knew the dangers of being strong-willed public figures. Both fought for what they believed in anyways. When Harvey Milk started to get increased death threats, he recorded a video, what people have referred to as his political will. And in it, Harvey Milk told you exactly what to take away from his story, and the end that he predicted. He said, If a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. That's all I ask. That's all. I ask for movement to continue, for movement to grow, because last week I got that phone call from Altoona, Pennsylvania, in my election gave somebody else one more person hope. And after all, that's what it's about. It's not about personal gain, not about ego, not about power. It's about giving those young people out there in Altoona, Pennsylvania's hope. Gotta give them hope. listening to Campfire Stories, Astonishing History. If you enjoyed this show, please don't forget to subscribe. If you're listening on a podcast app, I'd love it if you'd leave a positive review. If you're listening on YouTube, I encourage you to like this video and leave a comment with an idea for another episode, your thoughts on this story, or anything else you'd like to say. Have a great rest of your day, campers, and I'll see you back around the campfire soon. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, check out Buzzsprout. I use Buzzsprout to host this show and get listed on all the major podcasting apps, find sponsors, and track statistics. If you sign up with my link, you get a $20 Amazon gift card when you upgrade to a paid plan. Let me know if you make a podcast. I'd love to follow your show. Fiverr is the perfect place to find high-quality freelancers for any budget who do everything from writing and translation design, video editing, tutoring, programming, genealogy, souvenir collecting, and a ton of other incredible services. Check it out using the link in the description to tell them that I sent you. Thank you for supporting the show.